This is writer and game designer Robin Duvaz. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Flaws and disads. The explanatory versus the experiential. Growing a design aesthetic. And fraud at Harvard. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. As we once again follow the rattle of dice and the smell of Cheetos into the gaming hut, we discover that the one-legged dwarf at the door seems <laughs> bizarrely overconfident for someone in his position. Robin, do you know what's going on with this guy? I don't know, but that one-legged dwarf also seems to have a very large family of uh, dependents who seem uh, weak and easily attacked, and uh, I think his laser eye is uh, malfunctioning, and he seems to have a number of personality disorders, which I think may redound more to the... Uh, unfortunate result of the rest of his party than him. So we must be here to talk about flaws and disads or disadvantages. So uh, this is an idea that came into role-playing. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Ken. Did it originate with uh, champions and superhero role-playing, or do we have earlier instances of it? I think um, champions is the first point-built system, unless I'm overlooking something that they did in Villains and Vigilantes or something. So I believe that that's what we're looking at, if we're looking at the Ur uh, thing to get points off on. So this is a very popular concept in role-playing, one that I have struggled with in my designs in terms of struggling with people's desires for something that I think is not necessarily always functional. So I thought that we would sort of kick around the uh, history and idea of the flaw or the disad and look at ways for people who want to use them to use them well to a fun result. And I think we see them originate in the idea of looking at comic book superheroes and looking at how their powers seem to be quite often balanced, particularly in the sort of the classic DC heroes. There is often a very obvious balancing effect for the fact that those uh, heroes operate on a really high power level. So, you know, the, your classic example is Superman and Kryptonite. So that uh, if you need to, if you have an all-powerful hero, you need to somehow sometimes endanger him. And that's where uh, Kryptonite came into the lore. And as the Superman lore became increasingly uh, recondite in the uh, 50s and 60s, you had all sorts of different kinds of Kryptonite with different effects. And once you start looking at, oh, well, Superman is... Uh, allergic to kryptonite, and Green Lantern is susceptible to uh, yellow or uh, wood, if you want to pick the uh, you know most absurd examples of this. But you can also sort of look at all of these characters and go, oh, well, they're also sort of impeded by the fact that they have people they care about who they have to protect. So if we're creating a build point system, why don't we then model that somehow, that obviously that is part of what your character uh, makes your character vulnerable, so let's assign a point value to that. So that is a thought process that uh, makes sense and is sort of another example of how narrative qualities sort of got backdoored into role-playing from a mechanical combat 
vantage and then uh and so that increasingly you would get oh well he has this enemy and if you roll a die his enemy will show up during the scenario but there are all sorts of difficulties with this early classic conception of player created flaws and disadvantages in that the uh, the externality of that, the difficulty of making that work, is quite often offloaded onto the GM. Or, uh, th- at best, it's offloaded onto the GM. Sometimes, as you indicated, it's offloaded onto the other players, who, after all, have to um, uh, deal with the fact that their uh, that their dwarf is going to go berserk and charge into the middle of a fight uh, one time out of f- six, or whatever the, the uh, specific point damage has. That these... Uh, disadvantages in a game that depends on group cooperation towards a common aim are actively harmful in many cases to uh, that level of group cooperation. And, you know, on the one hand, the Justice League is able to work around the fact that uh, Green Lantern can't affect yellow, but if every so often Green Lantern would just, uh, you know, uh, suffer from hemophilia and topple over, he might be benched more often. Right. And at the most extreme example, flaws become a license to have your character act like a jerk and have the other players have to put up with it because it is on your character sheet and it's part of the rules. So there you get the psychological disadvantage where, you know, homicidal maniac. And uh, by selecting homicidal maniac as your disadvantage, chances are that actually that's not something you want to avoid having come up. That's something you want to do. You want to randomly go off and cause trouble and uh, murder people and have the justification of it being on your character sheet and force the other players to revolve around your actions to be reactive to your decision to sort of yank the narrative off in another direction. And that's a something that you see in all sorts of other games, but that once you have it on your character sheet, it's somehow you've got a justification for doing that. So really, that's not a flaw that you bear at all. That's something that you want to do. It's more license for you to do something that would otherwise be seen as dysfunctional, but now has been recognized within the rules. So uh, for example, when it came time to design the rule system that was originally known as uh, Hero Wars and then became Hero Quest. Uh, there was a demand from people to have flaws recognized as something that was on their character sheet, something that would undermine their character and, and that had a mechanical consequence of invoking it. But it was something that I was uh, included only kind of reluctantly with a giant caveat because I think that very often people leverage their flaws into, you know, they're either outsourced flaws or they are advantages in disguise. And especially in the HeroQuest system, where every ability is mechanically identical to every other ability, it's hard to think of something that would never be a positive, that you would never be able to roll against. Uh, And consequently, you know, if you had Homicidal Maniac rated at uh, you know, a rating of 14 or whatever, there are circumstances in which succeeding at a homicidal maniac role would be an effective gambit. That would be a valuable, useful thing to have. And it might be uh, a better argument just to tell people, well, you know, if you want to play a homicidal maniac, just do it. Don't put it on your character sheet. Don't give it a num- number. And then that way you have to own the fact that you want to have a character who creates a certain amount of disruption in, in the campaign. And that way, you know, when you decide to do that, it's you doing it. It's not a die roll that you can fob it off on. And also the other players can either adjust to your decision to play a homicidal maniac, or they can say, hey, uh, we would rather you not do that because it does not at all fit our series premise of being peacekeepers on this 
outward edge of the Orion galaxy. Yeah, the notion of the um, disadvantage that can be used as an advantage, obviously, is the sort of thing that is, you know, I mean, the Hulk is the classic example in comics. I mean, he's a giant green atom bomb, but that's sometimes what you want, because that's why the Hulk has to fight, um, uh, you know, large structures or uh, other giant green guys who need to be uh, smashed. So you can see that in your example with a homicidal maniac on your character sheet, because obviously your Hannibal Lecter character will use that as his power, or whatever other kind of character you you are with a homicidal maniac. And I think that um, the current iteration of Fate, and I could be wrong about this, that all of your aspects are assumed to be positive to you, because that's why you put them on your character sheet, but they can all be compelled negatively by the GM, or in some cases by other players, uh, to cause something bad to happen to you. So the Flash might have super fast as an aspect, and then Captain Cold coats the ground with ice, and he's like, since you're super fast, you don't have time to avoid slipping, and therefore that's super slippery to you, and I'm compelling that aspect to make your ability to fight Captain Cold harder. Right, and you could even sort of make a extreme sort of bendy case that, you know, being susceptible to kryptonite is part of the Superman package um, rather than a, a separate thing. But that is something that, you know, really just impacts that character. And the, a real challenge are the ideas of the sort of the randomly triggered plot devices when presumably the uh, GM is showing up with some sort of plot device already in play. Um, you can just sit down and, you know, roll everybody's uh, dependence roles to see who's endangered by a supervillain this week, or everybody's enemy roles to see which villain decides to seek vengeance against you. But again, that doesn't feel like a disadvantage. That feels more like you making a request for a particular plot hook, uh, a la the uh, melodramatic hooks in Feng Shui, or a zillion other games where the players are expected to supply some degree of input as to what sort of conflicts they want to get into. But again, that doesn't feel like a disadvantage that should then give you more points than the other guys in the group, especially if uh, all of the other participants all the, uh, in, in the group are also all getting extra points for uh, doing this thing that would be done anyway as part of the plotting process of any ongoing series. It is at this point that we should point out that, uh, much like every other rule system, if the GM is on top of it, it rapidly recedes into the distance. Uh, that, for example, people have been running GURPS, you know, for decades now, and I don't think that a GURPS game is automatically any more dysfunctional than, say, D&D, a game with no uh, disadvantage or flaw points available to you. Right. What I would say instead is that each rule set has its own carrying cost to the GM, its own set of tasks and chores, uh, some of them enjoyable, some of them less so, that it imposes on the GM, and that ideally when you are designing a rule set that you want to uh, control the extent to which any rule set carries that sort of load so that it is easier for the GM to run. So it's not a, a matter of games that have this are bad. It is games that have this are prone to uh, certain challenges that it's better to know about beforehand, and that if you are uh, really adept at adapting to them, you're going to have a better time than if you are not prepared for them. So I guess the, the next question then is, what are some ways that you can take either a traditional rule set with flaws or disadvantages, or a new hypothetical rule set that you want to build them into, and make them 
easier for the average GM to run. Well, I think that there's a couple of possibilities. There's the one that you were mentioning in HeroQuest, or that I think is true in Fate, where you can turn the flaws into character aspects that may be positive or negative, right? Overconfident may be positive when you're leading men, you know, across the um, uh, trenches in a, in a sudden charge. It may be a negative if you're trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, secretly surveil somebody and you definitely don't want to draw attention. The uh, Similarly, you can do that with all manner of other things. You know, Lois Lane is a positive if you need her to, you know, nose around and use her rep- reportorial skills and find out who... Uh, Luther's in bed with because Luther doesn't suspect that Lois Lane is uh, Superman's uh, girlfriend for whatever bizarre reason. And then she's a disadvantage when she's falling out of the helicopter and you have to choose between saving her or stopping the bank robbery. And something else to look at is the idea of just how many choices make an interesting choice is that uh, one of the challenges of build point systems is that they, uh, if you're not careful, you result in a character who's sort of a dog's breakfast, who has a ton of different things. Superman has a ton of different factors in his character because he's accumulated this mythos over decades and decades of comic books and films and cartoons and so forth. But if you are starting out with a character, it is probably much more interesting and much easier for other people to hook into if you have one key sort of recognizable flaw that uh, occasionally comes into play rather than a whole bunch of them. So it's, you know, more effective if your equivalent of Superman just has Lois Lane rather than having Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and Lana Lang and a, you know, a list of dependents and plot devices that is so incredibly long that you would have to play for three years for everybody in the play group to invoke all of them once. Yeah, although you can certainly subsume, you know, uh, Lois and Jimmy and uh, Perry and everyone as staffers of the Daily Planet, or you can give everyone, every superhero can have three uh, plot device dependents and they can rotate them in and out. You know, dependent one for Superman is usually Lois, but sometimes it might be Jimmy. Uh, Dependent one for Batman is um, uh, pretty much generally Alfred, but it might be, you know, Bruce Wayne's cousin who just showed up and is probably going to get murdered, that kind of thing. Right, or, or girlfriend of the month. Yes, right, you know, Petra Nemkova or whoever. Um, another interesting approach would be to, rather than having the GM be in charge of managing everybody's uh, plot hooks that they get character points for, or rather than allowing the players to just invoke them at times that they find convenient and congenial, you can then outsource the invocation of the flaw to another player in the group who is going to be uh, more likely to hose you than you are likely to hose yourself and has less to worry about than the GM so that you can say, okay, well, uh, you know, Janie, your uh, job next week is at some crucial point in the proceedings. You are going to invoke one of Franca's character's flaws and uh, here's the, you know, the index cards with her three flaws on them, and you just stand by and wait for that to happen. And so that, I think, will feel much more like a flaw than it does if you are, you know, trying to find sort of a backdoor way to uh, bring it into play in your favor. Yeah, the trouble with that, of course, is that you wind up uh, then having to police the group as a whole to see, you know, who's inclined to hose who more and who's inclined to hose who less and who's letting people off. And if it was the sort of flaw that you knew that you had to activate just once during the session, that's not as much bookkeeping 
as it normally is anyway for you as the GM. So I think that that may be sort of a half solution. Uh, again, it might work in practice depending on your game group, but I think it's the sort of thing that doesn't solve the, me- the, the major problem, which is that the GM has to pay attention to all this stuff. And I think that your notion, however, of a flaw that will automatically activate once per session is not a bad one. And then everyone knows that once per session, one of their flaws will go off, and it's going to be either the GM or another player or them that can do it. And, you know, the longer they hold off, the perhaps more uh, inconvenient it's going to be, but you have to invoke it negatively, necessarily. Right. And if you single out a particular player as the one whose flaw is going to drive the next session, that creates a sense of Hitchcockian suspense, where you know that something is going to happen, and you're waiting for the shoe to drop. And that, I would hope, again, would sort of make it feel like something negative or at least an obstacle or challenge that you have to deal with rather than something that you cutely got a bunch of free points for. I think it is interesting in terms of player buy-in. I I think the notion that players are so much more willing to buy a character flaw like overconfident but seem so much less willing to play in game systems like Pendragon that actually dictate your emotional response to things as part of the game. That, you know, flaws are almost universal in in games, but aside from sanity or humanity checks in Call of Cthulhu or Vampire, mechanics to dictate your response to things, which in theory should be along the same continuum, maybe even the same thing as buying a flaw that says, you know, weepy or whatever, or, you know, tends to rage against the dying of the light, whatever it is. I, I think it's weird that flaws are so accepted, whereas passion mechanics and personality mechanics aren't, and I, and I think that you may be onto something when you say that Characters don't see flaws as actual flaws. They see them either as uh, mechanisms to turn the spotlight on them, on themselves, which would be the, the positive uh, example, or simple point crocs. Right, and, and that sort of points to an interesting thing, because I think that, the, as you suggest, the issue is that people don't like having control of their characters taken away from them at crucial moments. They want to sort of choose when they become a homicidal maniac or crook you know, curl up into a ball, and that if the flaw is instead expressed as something that forecloses a choice point, right, you uh, reach this point in the narrative and where normally you would have two choices, now you only have one choice to go and save Lois or to, you know, go and on a rampage and uh, destroy the bus station in, in a hulky rage because you have that flaw. And again, that would be something that would make it feel like a flaw, and then the interesting thing to see would be how much people actually want that. You know, do they really want a flaw to feel like a flaw? And I think a lot of it, again, like the Call of Cthulhu sanity system or the vampire um, uh, uh, frenzy, players who start playing a given game knowing as they go in, if they're playing a superhero game that they know as they go in, this is the game that uh, models, you know, Marvel, you know, Silver Age, and so everyone's going to have an emotional crisis. And it's going to happen, and there's just going to be an emotional crisis moment. When you go in, and the GM says, you've broken down because you can never tell your girlfriend that you're actually Ant-Man, or whatever it is. And um, so you know going in that that's going to happen. It's less uh, annoying than if you're playing Champions or GURPS, and all of a sudden the GM says, "Uh, I don't care, it's been forever since you've had to chase off and save Lois Lane, you just have to do it. So should you get extra points for adding flaws to your character? Should you be uh, bribed in this way for something that you should 
probably want to do anyway because it's in genre for whatever it is that you're doing. I, th I think, again, that uh, getting extra points for that becomes, in my experience anyway, as a GM, you know, we'll say we want to run a 200-point game in GURPS, and the, the players will all come back with really great 250-point characters. <laughs> and a lot of times, the flaw becomes sort of like, you know, uh, Congress agreeing to sort of, you know, kick the um, uh, the Medicare doc fix down the road. We're going to pretend that the budget balances, but we're actually going to go into deficit, and you and I all know that these flaws exist basically so we can run a 250-point game against 200-point 200, uh, 200 villains and have a lot of fun that way. And I, I think that that may be, I mean, I, certainly that's a lot of the, the dynamic when I run GURPS and I run other point build systems, is that flaws become either ways for the GM to uh, sort of make the characters pay attention to the setting by building them into the flaws. You're all hunted by the KGB or whatever. And um, to another extent, they become sort of a implicit contract that the players say, if you allow me to play, to have all these extra points to do something really cool, I promise it will be really cool, and if it isn't, you can hose me with these flaws. And that sort of brings us to uh, another topic, which is the contrasting emotional resonance of build point systems versus other crunchy trad systems, which brings up one of our own flaws, which is whenever we invoke a new topic at about the 15-minute mark, we have to end the segment. The smell of popcorn and the uh, lobby chatter about uh, the latest works of Jean-Luc Godard inform us that we have once again stepped into the celluloid realm of the cinema hut, where I thought that we would talk about an interesting new movie that we both love without telling you anything about it, except that you should go and see it, and then bounce from that to a look at a particular narrative approach. And that uh, movie is Upstream Color, so Ken, as... Your exercise in telling people to go see this without telling them anything they shouldn't know, how would you encapsulate Upstream Color by Shane Carruth? I would uh, encapsulate it exactly that way. I would say Upstream Color is the second film by Shane Carruth, the guy who made Primer back in 2004, which was a phenomenal uh, science fiction film, a phenomenal time travel film, and actually, given that it was made for $7,000, just a pretty phenomenal film. Uh, this uh, upstream color, I think, was made for slightly more money, uh, but again, it's all up there on the screen. And I would say that if you are interested in seeing what Shane Carruth does next, then go see Upstream Color. It is a, it is a terrific film, and it's one that you are you are you are going to want to watch, and you're going to need to watch, and that is going to, I think, percolate into the sphere of uh, nerd culture and and science fiction in a similar fashion that uh, that Primer did. So I, I think that uh, you owe it to yourself to get ahead of the curve, uh, lest you be schooled on Slashdot by the Alpha Nerds. And I'm just going to give one little bit more of indication of sort of uh, tone and subject matter, which is hopefully not going to give anything too far away, which is uh, imagine if Terrence Malick took over a David Cronenberg script. <laughs> um, and so this film is interesting in that it is a genre piece with a very traditional genre trope at the center of its plot, but does not feel plotty at all. And that's because it occupies an extreme end of a narrative spectrum between the explanatory and the experiential. And we are used in the 
halls of uh, genredom to things that are very explanatory, sometimes uh, unfortunately so, in which we are given a lot of dialogue to tell us what is going on at any given moment, and that invites us to then wonder about uh, flaws in the plot and to understand what the stakes are and to interact with the uh, whatever the surface level idea is uh, and the thematic level beyond that. And so genre plots, whether it's the thriller genre or uh, space opera, uh, traditionally come with a lot of uh, scenes where people tell you what is going on in order to root you in the action. And that way you can understand what the obstacles are as the uh, characters, whether they're dramatic characters or iconic characters, confront these obstacles and try to overcome them. And you understand the significance of everything at the end of the narrative. At the other end of the continuum, you get something that, uh, like this film, which is extremely experiential, which shows you what the characters are going through, but there's never a point where anyone is sat down and gets an explanation of what exactly is going on. You can piece that explanation together as you follow the film and afterwards, but there is no uh, narrator to burst in and, and give you uh, all of the reference points you need. The sort of extreme ridiculous example of that you get in Psych at the end of Psycho, where there's that famously dead, dull scene where a psychiatrist who we haven't met before shows up to give us a little lecture on psychopathology in order to understand the mostly sort of experiential storyline that we've had up until now. And there's a big debate in uh, cineast circles as to whether that scene is uh, something that Hitchcock was reluctantly forced to uh, add uh, and therefore uh, filmed in as flat and stupid a way as he possibly could, or something where the flatness and stupidness of it was part of a tongue-in-cheek uh, joke, or whether he sincerely thought that the audience had been completely destabilized by this really early example of an experiential narrative that broke a lot of the rules uh, was necessary to orient people again so that they would uh, return to a sense of normality. I think one of the interesting things about Psycho that she specifically mentioned is it begins very much as a um, uh, as an explanatory film, right? It's about um, Marion Crane and her and her and her boyfriend have stolen the money and they're going off into the desert. And it, you you watch it and it's like, oh, this is just a crime film. There's there's nothing particularly unusual or weird about it. And then after the car accident or whatever it is that that, that changes things and she has to go to the hotel uh, to the Bates Motel, then. We're in the experiential world, and it's the fact that the audience has been thrown out of that crime film into a film that they don't know what it is that creates a lot of that experiential tension in Psycho. And of course, since I think no one has has seen Psycho in the last 30 years without knowing the story, it's hard to appreciate just how experiential Psycho is unless you go into it and really try and watch it without knowing what's going on, which is practically impossible. Right, and that's the same narrative trick that Quentin Tarantino plays in his screenplay from, from Dusk Till Dawn, where, again, it seems to be uh, one sort of movie, a crime movie, in that case a, you know, uh, Outlaws on the Run movie, and then midway through uh, shifts into a completely uh, different genre, I think, uh, to fun but less epic-making effect mm -hmm. than you uh, had there. But so, for example, any film in which there are vampires in it and you get an explanation of what the vulnerabilities of vampires are and how the vampire's mythology works in 
this particular version of vampires is dipping into the explanatory, whereas something where you just see a character show up and you see them use the whatever the weapon is that uh, knocks down vampires, but you never have that explained beforehand, would then fall under the rubric of the experiential. And I guess in a way I'm sort of using fancier terms for the dichotomy of uh, show versus tell. Uh, in uh, any creative writing seminar, you will be told that it is important, especially in uh, screenwriting, which is a visual medium, or comics, which is a visual medium, to show things rather than telling them to the audience. But in fact, something that just shows uh, for its entire length, the way that Upstream Color does or the way that uh, Psycho does for a big chunk of its uh, length or other Terrence Malick movies, including the ones with narration where they're telling yeah. you what's going on. Or, or Darren Aronofsky films. Right. And so, yeah, a pie is another example of something that's, that's mm -hmm. completely experiential. And those are not the movies that are making $100 million or opening weekend at the box office that, in fact, people find a comfort in being uh, told things and being oriented more conventionally in a narrative. And uh, television, of course, is very explanatory because despite the fact that it has images, it's a very verbal medium. Yeah, and I, I think that um, uh, you can certainly have things that are, are sort of, if you just looked at them bare on the page, they would seem experiential. But since everyone knows what the audience actually knows, they aren't. Uh, one assumes that, say, um, uh, a guy who's been raised his whole life in, you know, the jungles of Brazil could watch a completely, uh, you know, a, a, could watch the Avengers and be baffled at what's going on because there's no point at which anyone stops and says, Captain America, you know, we, we know who you are. And then sort of explains that we need a super team to fight aliens and that aliens are bad or any of the things that we take for granted as part of this comic book universe, either because we're Marvel fans or because we've seen the, the foregoing five films that did all the heavy lifting of explanatory so that once, you know, um, uh, you know, the Hulk hulks out, everyone's like, yay, the Hulk is hulked out as opposed to what? <laughs> this, this was only at very best obliquely hinted at when the Black Widow was confronting Bruce Banner, who again, in proper experience, uh, experiential fashion, we didn't know who he was. And since he's Mark Ruffalo, we still maybe aren't sure who he is until it becomes obvious that she says Dr. Banner. But if you're talking uh, to someone who doesn't know who the Hulk is, that, that scene is still fairly opaque for a while. Right. And if you are uh, one of sophisticated cinematic palette, like uh, Ken and I, you go to something like Upstream Color and are uh, wowed by its uh, refusal to explain. And it's just sort of putting you in the middle of this situation. But in fact... Uh, you know, if you look at what is, again, at what is popular, for example, the, the Dan Brown novels <laughs> are famous for breaking all of the rules of any creative writing workshop in terms of how much it just tells you up front. Uh, you know, uh, I, I forget the name of the character, but there's some line in the, you know, internationally renowned uh, art researcher Joe Schmendrick uh, got out of bed that morning and went over to, his, you know, that the yeah, right. telegraphs a lot. Uh, which uh, supposedly you're not supposed to do, uh, but in the way that a lot of uh, best-selling fiction does, it actually breaks a lot of the uh, the rules that you're going to learn in a creative work writing workshop and is, I guess, more understandable to a lot of people because it is more 
explanatory. Well, also because in a lot of cases, I mean, God knows I'm not defending Dan Brown, but in that thriller <laughs> genre that he is a travesty of, the internal development of the character is almost never the fundamental point. That the characters are, at the, at the best, they're iconic characters. And if there is an, a, an internal crisis or an internal depth to the character, that is that, that becomes important, that's revealed. If not, it's like, you know, as a 20-year veteran of the SAS, you know, Lieutenant... Uh, you know, Jenkins knew exactly how to do this. And so it's like, okay, he's a, it, and that it serves as a shorthand because what's actually the important part is not Jenkins' 20 years in the SAS. It's how he's going to fight off vampires or terrorists or terrorist vampires. Uh, Lars von Trier, in an interview I once saw about his filmmaking, complained about the way that his uh, film professors enforced very rigidly a sense that everything had to be experiential, that you weren't allowed to just explain anything, even though it was much faster and more economical to do that. And his example is that he had a professor who hated the subtitle at the beginning that says, Warsaw, 1942. <laughs> and to him, that that was just uh, a despicable uh, act of anti-cinema to uh, do that. But of course, uh, as von Trier points out, uh, do you actually really want a complicated three-minute scene that's only point is to show you instead of tell you that it is Warsaw 1942? So uh, famously, uh, one of his very early films uh, begins with uh, the equivalent of Warsaw 1942, and then you see that it's actually on a piece of paper, and then a fly is swatted and smushed on the piece of paper that has that information on it. And the fly, of course represents von Trier's film professor. <laughs> the, 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 I was just reading um, about Ernst Lubitsch's book, um, book, his movie Trouble in Paradise, and that he held up uh, shooting because he hated the opening of the, of the script, which was a title card that said Venice. And he says, that's lazy and stupid. We're not going to show the Grand Canal. We're not going to have a title card that says Venice. You, scriptwriter, you're going to give me an opening scene that tells the audience we're in Venice. And the, the guy finally comes up with a deal where, like, a dog is, like, um, uh, rutting in garbage, and the garbage is picked up by a garbage man, and the garbage man carries it down the alley. And as he carries it down the alley, he starts whistling to himself. And then when he puts the garbage in his gondola, he's singing to himself, and he, as he pulls his gondola away, it's like, oh, we're in Venice. And the the notion that you do all of that to avoid, and of course Lubitsch is, is famously, you know, one of the, the fathers sort of in direction in cinema. Um, but the note that you put all of that in instead of just a title card for Venice, and he's making a romantic comedy, right? He's not making a, a, a movie about, you know, the sort of, you know, uh, Ken uh, Lochian struggle of the street. It, it's just like, he just wanted to have something that said Venice without having to say Venice. And so I think for a lot of directors, that that sort of indirection, that sort of um, experiential feel is so crucial to what they want you to be, uh, the, the the level of balance they want the audience to have, that uh, putting in the, the title card or, um, or or giving the guy's resume, or the, the classic bit in Rambo, or I think it's in First Blood, actually, where Richard Crenna, as uh, Rambo is you know, running amok in a little town, literally reads the guy's curriculum vitae to another character so that we can establish everything about him, including that he's half German, half Cherokee. <laughs> well, that's a very important plot oh, point. Oh, it's, it's crucial, obviously. Comes up again and again in all the movies. And this sort of brings us to one of the major things about our medium, the role-playing medium, that is very different from even from verbal fiction, but certainly very different from cinema in that you cannot have a purely experiential role-playing experience. You can have a purely experiential video game experience where your character is 
exploring the sandbox of a world and there's never a cutscene and never a piece of dialogue and everything could be conveyed through visuals and music. But in role-playing, the very medium in which everyone is able to create a reasonably shared imaginative vision of what's going on in the story is a Q&A process where the GM describes things verbally, where they tell you things. And, you know, even the fight is uh, is told to you uh, as an interpretation of what uh, the dice are doing. Although, again, there's uh, there's a continuum because there are games such as our friend James Wallace's Las Vegas or the earlier... Um, uh, I think it was called Sandman City of Halal. There was a game called Psychosis that begin with the characters not knowing what's going on, or to a lesser extent, uh, a game like Over the Edge, if you started off outside Alamarha and the game is about exploring the crazed sandbox of Alamarha, that, yeah, you may know who your character is, although, again, in Las Vegas, you don't. Um, but you don't know anything about your setting. You don't know anything about the surroundings, and those surroundings can be revealed again all right, I'm fighting orcs. Why am I fighting orcs? I thought I was a 20-year veteran of the SAS. I'm so confused. And until the old man in the tavern or um, uh, the you know the voice on the tape shows up to explain to you, um, yeah, these are orcs, and they've been created by a Soviet uh, genetic uh, weapons program that's gone amok, you may not be able to put it together in a in a narrative fashion, and you are building an experiential. Uh, story for yourself out of the encounters that your that your characters have, and I think that's that's a common thing in a lot of horror uh, GM's uh, toolbox to to present the story in, in that sort of fashion. But even so, the presentation of what is putatively experiential is the act of telling. Mm-hmm. Right, the sentence is: "You wake up in the desert uh, in a city, and you see lights on the horizon. Uh, you are." delivering that verbally, that that uh, creates a mental image and hopefully an experiential one, but that is created through telling because there is uh, nothing more expository than nearly everything a GM says in the course of a role-playing session. Yes, but they're, um, they're, they're, they're building an experiential story out of expository scenes, right? Each scene is, as you say, you know, it's 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 fully explained. Maybe you know, you know exactly where all the orcs are, but you don't know where they came from or what they're doing there. And so your your overarching experience of the game is an explanatory, is an experiential one. In the same fashion, you know, even the most over obvious plot ever written, you know, even Rambo doesn't explain. Oh, that man is dead because he was shot. It's like no, you saw him get shot. No one, you know, leans over the the cop and says he's dead. You know, by a gunshot wound. So there is a a level of experientialness even in a thoroughly explanatory film. Right. There are almost always things that exist on a continuum, um, and the unusual thing is when you see a work that yanks you really far to one side of the continuum or uh, really far to the other. And it might be, you know, more accurate to say about role-playing that it's uh, a medium in which the relationship between the experiential and the explanatory is much harder to disentangle in that way. Yeah, it it certainly, it always is. And the examples that I give are games that, that make a specific virtue out of that change, that that is part of the felt experience that the game is intended to engender, as opposed to the felt experience of being a vampire or being a guy who's in a a rough analog of Tangier. And I guess on that note, uh, we won't tell you that we're exiting this segment. You will just have to experience the beginning of the next one. 
it's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. John Lighthoiser asks Ken and Robin. Robin, since you've been designing games for many years and have designed a number of game systems, where and when do you think your design aesthetic gelled into what it is today? Which games most strongly led you to this point, or had the biggest impact on your designs? Robin? So, uh... Hopefully at some point, Ken, you will lead me away from the specific to the general, so we're not having a, a 15 minute of Robin talks about himself. Um, but basically the... We hate uh, that. Yeah. The, <laughs> the early games that had a huge influence on me, of course, would be D&D, and my then uh, eighth grade pals got in on uh, D&D just during the transition from Blue Box to the uh, first uh, AD&D books uh, coming out. And from then, uh, I, we sort of branched out later into uh, a lot of the Chaosium stuff in particular. So things that I were, was influenced early on while still a player and never thinking about becoming a designer were often not so much the games themselves, but the experiences within those games, the ones that sort of turned the light bulb on in my head and told me, hey, wait, this is a story form. And so uh, one of those is we played a campaign of a game that uh, Zeb Cook designed, a very simple standalone game that came in an early issue of Dragon Magazine uh, called uh, Crime Fighters. And uh, it was a very stripped-down pulp game, and we played a number of sessions of that. And I still have a very vivid visual image of something that we described happening in the course of play where one of the characters was in a phone booth and the glass was shattering the phone booth and uh, the character was uh, sort of ducking down and it... Uh, gave me this idea that uh, role-playing could be uh, cinematic and not just uh, tactical. And also uh, Call of Cthulhu is the game that showed me that games could follow a story form, the story form of a mystery scenario. And in particular, I associate that with uh, an early uh, Call of Cthulhu adventure uh, from an early anthology where they were uh, south of the border and there was a Mexican vampire and I think there was sort of an Edgar Allan Poe aspect of that. Does that ring any bell, bells, Ken? Uh, not right off the top okay, of my well, head. Uh, this one we will leave as an exercise for the uh, reader, because we just spent uh, 15 minutes off uh, mic uh, googling the crime fighters. Um, but anyway, the, the, the point, what it was, doesn't really matter in this context, but just that I saw that role-playing games could be infused with story, and as someone who was uh, angling for a, a career as a, a writer, I was naturally drawn to the idea of how to allow these exciting moments that are sort of spontaneously in one instance and through the structure and planning of a Call of Cthulhu adventure in another instance, how to create structures that would follow the way that a narrative works and to bring out that one aspect among many of the role-playing game experience. And there is actually sort of an ur-text, a game where I think my design aesthetic gelled, which uh, was never published. And this is something that I came up with uh, in sort of the middle of my phase of reading the APA Alarms and Excursions. And it was something that I called Narrow Rules. And it came from the idea that if you look at uh, comic books, you see that sometimes you can have a Marvel DC crossover where the Hulk meets Batman, and yet somehow these completely mismatched characters wind up being equal in the narrative because within the rules of storytelling, being a super genius is just as important and interacts with the idea of being super strong. And so uh, what I then set out to do was create a game system in which every ability 
was equal mechanically to every other ability in its term ability to move the narrative forward. And in this sort of primitive version of what essentially much later became Hero Wars and Hero Quest, I sort of used all of the dice in the box, and you would assign different dice at different step levels to different abilities in a way that in some ways mirrored uh, Earth Dawn, although that was a very uh, lovingly built crunchy system, and this was a very stripped-down, bare-bones system. And that is the rule system, actually, that I used to run the uh, Madlands campaign uh, for my group of players, and that is the setting that, you know, later became a GURPS book, which uh, then wound up being, you know, wed to a system which was uh, essentially the polar opposite of the system that I uh, was running the, the game with. Although, I mean, I wouldn't say the polar opposite, because obviously part of the point of GURPS is that you buy, you know, decks and IQ for the same amount of points. I suppose, but certainly in, in complexity level, yeah, and in no, terms of right. the way that it thinks, uh, the way that GURPS thinks is, what is the physical reality that we are establishing? Where is our physics engine? And then mm -hmm. what is everything worth within the value of that physics engine? And uh, narrow rules and later HeroQuest think in terms of what is the narrative economy? How do these pieces interact in terms of uh, a narrative economy. So in GURPS, there's no system in which you can use your super intelligence directly to overcome the Hulk's super strength, for example. Right, unless you have, because you're modeling some specific u universe, uh, a specific maneuver or power that you've built that runs off IQ. Right. So when you've got narrow rules, which seems like it's basically the, the arc, the drive that's pointing towards um, uh, Hero Quest. Is there a branch point at which you are pointing towards feng shui and then into gumshoe, where it is not as explicitly everything is equal, but is more explicitly genre modeling as the as the goal? Yeah, because I think basically that the if there's one common thread that runs through all of my often very different designs, it is you know what is the experience that we're attempting to uh, model at the table, whether that experience is. Uh, the experience of going through a mystery uh, game or uh, recreating uh, action cinema. Or in the most extreme example of Rune, how do you backwards engineer something that is already a video game and to how do you make a role-playing game that is more like a video game? Um, and so that is not about emulating a traditional narrative in any way, but it's still that same thought process of uh, what is the experience we're attempting to have? Uh, what is the emotional valence that we're seeking? And how do you create a rules mechanism that brings that emotional interaction to the fore? So, for example, in Dying Earth, because it's based on a series of stories that is all about reversals and trickery and thinking things are one way and then another way, you have a system where you roll a die and then either you can choose to re-roll the die if you don't like the result, or your opponent can force you to re-roll your die if they don't like the result. And that gives you that wave of one-upsmanship that is so central to Dying Earth and its later generic version, which is Skullduggery. So to the extent that I have an aesthetic, because when I, you know, am confronted with a problem, I don't sit down and go, well, what is the Robin Law's way of overcoming this problem? I just say, well, how do, what's the way of overcoming this problem? And naturally, insofar as it is Robin Law's tackling the problem, it will naturally tend to be resolved the Robin Law's way. Why all Chuck Berry songs sound like Chuck Berry songs. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and 
there are certainly things that I try to do, even sort of external to that, pet peeves that I try to avoid. So, for example, um, I really, as a GM and as a freelance designer of adventures and supplements, really hate derived stat systems where the character stats, you can check the math and they can either be right or wrong. That drives me crazy because you frequently are wrong and someone... Uh, often someone long after it is published will check it and find out that you are wrong. And also because the process of getting the math right on a complicated character is bookkeeping. And uh, there are some people who enjoy arithmetic on its own aesthetic terms, uh, but I am not one of those people. Yes. Uh, those, those people do not generally gravitate to, towards writing as a career. Right. I also um, you know, am frustrated when I pick up a game book and entire pages are given over to character and creature stats. So it is always my objective, pretty much regardless of uh, what it is that I'm doing, to make the stat block as compressed as possible. And so uh, in Feng Shui and in Gumshoe, there, there are a couple of lines of uh, text and, and numbers for the characters which uh, do not have math, where you can look at them and go, well, that one's been calculated right and that one's calculated wrong. So I don't think you can directly draw a line from that to, you know, the sort of core question of seeing how to emulate a genre and how to create a rule structure that creates a given emotional effect, except that it creates the emotional effect of avoiding useless annoyance. <laughs> as you have been uh, moving towards story creation as, as sort of the goal of the, of the design, did bouncing off something like uh, West End's uh, Star Wars or... Even something like the specific iterations of the storyteller system between uh, Wraith, Mage, and Vampire, all of them three very different feeling games using the same basic engine. Did any of that inform the way that you used Gumshoe in different ways or that you represented uh, action in different ways? Or was it just a sort of everyone was sort of moving towards story that was designing in the ninety in the late 80s and, and early 90s and you just happened to be one of those people? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, that, that I certainly look at where the rest of the hobby seems to be going. And it's important to know sort of what the basic assumptions are of what people want out of a role-playing game. And that there's certainly things in various of my de designs that are there to address people's assumptions of what ought to be in there. That I think it's, you know, that you mostly don't want to upend uh every assumption of role-playing, except in the case of HeroQuest, where it does sort of upend every assumption, but uh, or nearly every assumption. But often there are instances, we spoke earlier, even in HeroQuest, of how flaws are in HeroQuest, even though I think in an ideal universe where other people didn't expect flaws to be part of your character, that it would be, you know, better off not addressed. Um, so certainly I uh, look at where the field seems to be going, look at where people's assumptions are. But I've never been the sort of designer who looks at a problem and then looks at the corpus of established work and go, well, this clearly calls for me to uh, adapt the uh, chase rules from Knight's Black Agents and take the uh, glamour rules from James Bond and this, I need to nick this other bit and here we'll get... I don't look at the established... A set of, of design works as sort of a uh, a pantry to raid. I don't claim to ever have designed anything wholly original because I think that's a fool's errand that no matter what it is that you think that you've created anew, there will be someone who will be able to point you to something much earlier that uh, strongly resembles that. And so I'm certainly aware of other designs and I don't claim 
a, a huge amount of originality for uh, any anything, but I'm also not um, consciously looking for other designs to raid for uh, mechanical ideas. That's like the opposite of me. I, I'm always looking at other designers' um, uh, mechanics as, as sort of, you know, hacks, as things that I can use maybe for their intended purpose, maybe for a different purpose. Uh, I think I mentioned in the Knights Black Agents that I took heat after, you know, looking at um, uh, the plot stress mechanic that Chris Birch, I think, put into uh, Fate using in uh, Star Blazer Adventures. So I'm I'm always raiding those those other uh, toolboxes on the grounds that it's much faster and easier for me to do that than to sort of try and come at it and, and reinvent the wheel. Do you find that you solve those problems just by not producing microsystems to address those issues, or do you solve those problems just by um, uh, resolving that a, a strong enough central mechanic basically overrides? any problems uh, or any uh, hiccups later on in play? Well, I think it's a matter of knowing what your central dynamic is. And uh, once you know that, going, well, what's the dying earth way to solve this problem? Or what's the gumshoe way to solve this problem? Or what's the hero quest way to solve this problem? And that what you come up with may strongly parallel something that somebody else has already done. It's highly unlikely that it won't parallel something that somebody else has done because there are only so many uh, solutions out there. And I, I don't, claim to be some sort of extra planar genius or anything, that it's just a, uh, a logical uh, progression from your first principles. And it, it makes a lot of sense to me that you look at things in terms of, you know, what's the previous citation? Uh, you know, where's the literature? Because that's how you uh, approach so much else. That just as, uh, in a way, that my various games think the way that I think, uh, your games think the way that you think. And uh, I uh, think that we would be much poorer if there was one uh, approach to building a, uh, a role-playing game system, and that's why it's uh, not just good but essential to have all sorts of different designers uh, either working in parallel or building on uh, each other's work, and that there is uh, you know, no right way to do that, just as you can't say that Hitchcock made films the right way and Lubitsch made them the wrong way. <laughs> And I think that by uh, attempting to sneak back into the cinema hut on your old ticket, we have indicated that uh, this hut is finished at speaking to us. surveillance, the shadows, the possible spore of a gray alien in the air suggests that we have once again retreated into the depths of the conspiracy corner where a story in the news allows us to uh, look at uh, perhaps a uh, lesser ranked installation of conspiracy lore, and that is the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program or harp. So uh, before we get into the story in the news, Ken, how does this figure into conspiracy lore? Uh, harp is basically it's a giant um, uh, device that uh, beams high frequency radio waves into the ionosphere and then measures what happens in the ionosphere as a result. It's basically um, it's all right there in the name. It's a high frequency active auroral research, and it's trying to figure out 
auroras and general truths about the ionosphere, obviously because there are huge applications for military communications once you've got the ionosphere sort of mapped or nailed down or uh, as things get more conspiratorial harnessed. But uh, you send radio waves by uh, radio signals by bouncing them off the ionosphere. There was talk for a while that you might be able to use this research to uh, uh, construct extremely long range, a long wave, uh, extremely low frequency waves that you would be able to send uh, rather through the bottom of the Earth uh, and avoid the ionosphere entirely. Uh, that is the sort of thing that people who don't understand how expensive scientific apparatus work think that they're doing at HARP, but that would be an entirely different thing, and I think they're doing the ELF experiments in Michigan anyway. But the um, but the basic you know goal ha has been you know since the I think it was uh, constructed in the in the late 80s or maybe mid 80s, uh, probably was approved in the 70s and then built under the Reagan uh, administration and finally started working. Uh, in 2002, I think, is when it began its experiments. And uh, it has attracted, as mysterious government um, uh, facilities will, full of uh, antennas and lasers and God knows what, it has attracted the attention of your various conspiracy theorists, of whom the uh, dean is a fellow named Nick Bedjic, who is also a specialist in uh, CIA mind control and other um, uh, awesome things like that and is, coincidentally, the brother of the uh, junior senator from Alaska, the Democratic Party's proud Mark Bedjic. And he was the son of a uh, representative, uh, Bedjic, who, uh, also Nicholas Bedjic, who died in a mysterious plane crash in 1972 in Alaska uh, with uh, the House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, which is another thing that people have sort of made any number of conspiracy theories out of. And so I think that he was he was literally raised in the hothouse of a conspiracy theory and then uh, discovered the existence of this uh, magical uh, Tesla antenna beam thing in his uh, stomping grounds. He sort of has parlayed Harp into his... Um, uh, his uh, speciality in the in the conspiratorial world, and there's yet another beautiful uh, connection there in that Senator Bedjik uh, took over from the uh, famed uh, long or running Alaska Senator Ted Stevens, and the reason that Harp exists in Alaska at all is that the people who were uh, trying to get this uh, funded and erected initially uh, garnered only lukewarm enthusiasm from the Pentagon. And so they stroked their beards and they asked themselves uh, what state, uh, which uh, might be conveniently closer to the ionosphere somehow, but more importantly had a huge expropriator who loved uh, mega projects in his state could they approach and of course they went to uh, senator ted stevens and so uh in the less glamorous but still uh, entertaining non-conspiratorial world uh, there's a great uh, footnote there as to why this expensive installation exists at all and that uh, plays into uh, big time uh, pork barrel politics yeah and again um uh, as someone has pointed out uh, compared to the kind of pork that ted stevens was approving harp is Pennies on the dollar. Uh. Yes, it, it's a mere rounding error of uh, ionosphere blasting fun. And yeah. so the uh, speaking of things on the mundane and, and non-conspiratorial level, the thing that has harp in the news is that a long-term uh, military contractor who is doing scientific research at HARP uh, named Alfred Wong has now uh, uh, pled guilty to bilking the project of uh, a huge amount of money, nearly $1.7 million. Uh, he was falsely uh, 
billing the uh, DARPA and the Interior Department, and he was claiming to have invented uh, things that he had not, in fact, invented, and then selling them in a sort of a shell game between his various shell companies, which uh, suggests that uh, real-life mad scientists would not bother uh, threatening to destroy the ionosphere and therefore uh, blackmailing the governments of Earth until James Bond or Austin Powers interrupted them, they just get into the defense establishment and uh, make their money the old-fashioned way. Yeah, the specific charges for which uh, Wong pled guilty are not even particularly associated with Harp. It's just that he had other projects that uh, were, were front companies he was uh, managing Another another ionospheric research facility, High Pass, which was nearby, and he had um, uh, like a company in California somewhere, uh, Beverly Hills or, or, or Van Nuys, somewhere in the in the Southland, that was basically um, stealing government money to buy itself, you know, office furniture. It's not that he was <laughs> bilking the the government out of um, uh, vast sums of money and using it to build his subterranean lair. He was just basically, you know, engaged in very, very petty uh, embezzlement. I mean, it's petty by government standards, obviously. If you or I embezzled a million dollars, then it would be in the news. But uh, considering that, you know, the government <laughs> loses a million dollars every day without knowing where it went in the first place, this is not um, uh, literally earth-shattering. Although Harp, of course, if uh, one listens to Nick Bedridge, is literally earth-shattering because of its ability to um, create scalar energy, which is the kind of scary energy that doesn't exist, and that um, Nick, uh, Nikola Tesla used to accidentally set off the Tunguska blast. And the theory being that among the mind control and communication with aliens and battling the uh, ultra-terrestrials uh, things that the Harp is for, it is also for uh, creating uh, earthquakes and hurricanes and otherwise releasing scalar energy explosions in uh, uh, hostile countries that we don't like. Uh, so your various earthquakes in Iran and China and uh, the the um, bad weather in Russia that uh, destroyed um, uh, their crop harvests can all be pinned on HARP, uh, despite the fact, of course, that HARP, like I say, hasn't even been going until about 2002. And so therefore... Uh, all of the things that, that caused the Soviet Union to collapse are not Harp's fault. They're the fault of some other secret government project that we're not cleared for. Right. And naturally, any disasters that occur in the continental United States are because there are rogue agents at work in Harp or someone just spilled their coffee on the console. Or, you know, Dick Cheney just hates New Orleans, and that's why they caused um, uh, Hurricane Katrina or... Uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy, or whatever it is. So, uh, what is what are the coolest story threads that we can uh, tease from an imaginary world version of Harp? Well, I, I think that Nick Bedrich has done a terrific job of of teasing uh, cool story threads uh, from the thing. That it's um, uh, that it's meant to um, serve as a uh, mind control uh, matrix bracket uh, to to sort of. Uh, power the, uh, the the mind control of whole populations. I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, there's a lot you can do with, with that. Uh, the notion that um, I find it very interesting that pretty much every culture has believed that the auroras are where demons live, or ghosts, or angry ghosts, or evil ghosts. Some some sort of badness lives up in the aurora, and so the notion that the military has got a giant uh, beamer that, uh, that, um, uh, that, that that's pestering the aurora can either be seen as um, our, you know, sort of brave black ops guys fighting off uh, interdimensional aliens, or the military making pacts with demons to do it to do its evil bidding, depending on 
what direction you want to take that particular story. That's my that's my favorite uh, aspect of it. Is not so much using it as yet another Tesla weapon or using it as yet another uh, mind control device. I, I like the part where you are using it for its intended purpose, sure. But the reason that you're measuring the aurora is not because of um, uh, radio communications. It's because there are demons that live there, and so you have to uh, you have to be able to map them out and 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 pen up Ithaqua there or whatever it is. Right. So if the scenario is that you are uh, attempting to uh, penetrate Harp and take it over, then clearly uh, the wrong person has gotten in charge of it and is uh, wiggling the dials the wrong way and is trying to uh, release or or summon the demons, and you need to stop them. Mm-hmm. And if you're scenario is that you're defending the base, which is usually a, a defense scenario. It's usually not as fun as a uh, an offense scenario, and perhaps that's a topic for another uh, gaming hut. Uh, you would be, uh, you know, trying to prevent the agents of the de- demons from destroying the base and uh, and freeing them. So uh, how do uh, how does uh, Senator uh, Begich uh, respond to his uh, brother's conspiratorial writings. I, I think that Senator Begich, and I, I did not actually look on his uh, website to find out what he says about his brother, because I suspect that he keeps his brother as far away from his website as he can. But I suspect that he points out that his brother is not a Democrat, is a member of the Alaska Independence Party, and uh, has his own uh, set of beliefs that do not uh, impact uh, Senator Begich's uh, votes or belief that Alaska needs expensive ionosphere testing equipment. Um I, I think that certainly every politician can use a Billy Carter, someone to, to point at and say, yeah, that guy's hilarious. And, you know, in some cases you make them vice president, and in some cases you're, you already have them as your brother. So it works out pretty nicely. I, I think the Alaskans have probably all got crazy relatives, so I don't think it can possibly be hurting him up there. Or, or are crazy relatives. <laughs> yes, <laughs> have or are. Well, even the ones that are probably also have crazier relatives. Right. That's how it works. Well, and that's the delightful thing about Alaska is that uh, because it attracts people who uh, are uh, interested in going up to the geographical fringe of America and making a a new life for themselves that you can uh, envision quite a fun, satisfying uh, weirdness campaign uh, with Alaska as your base because you've got all sorts of uh, uh, adventurous things that you can do. You can have the uh, harp be part of uh, one scenario, and then you can have them uh, hunting the Wendigo, and then you can have intelligent wolves, and uh, you can have uh, sort of gloriously cracked uh, player characters with uh, even more cracked uh, uh, supporting characters uh, around them. You've got the uh, hazards of the of the wilderness environment, and so it would be uh, a lot of fun to run a uh, sort of modern, weird, uh, occult conspiracy game. Uh, you could uh, go for quite a while in, in Alaska. Are there other Alaskan legends that you would rope into that? I think definitely they're, um, the, uh, the, the Inuit, the, the native Alaskans, have a one of the great crazy legendaries of of anybody uh, that they've got because they live on so, so much of a of a knife edge of survival almost all their supernatural creatures are dangerous in some way and usually they're pretty scary because their uh th- their form is taken from a fairly scary set of predators and also from people who are starving to death out on the glacier and so they they have you know just more interesting uh supernatural uh, villains than a lot of other uh, belief systems. So I would I would draw uh, heavily on Native Alaskan lore. Certainly, if I'm doing that, uh, the fact that it's dark uh, so much of the year makes it a terrific setting, even for more con- uh, conventional 
uh, supernatural villains, as uh, they, uh, Steve Niles and um, Temple Smith demonstrated with uh, 30 Days of Night, where the vampires come up to Barrel, Alaska, and just can walk around all the time and don't have any weaknesses whatsoever, because it's awesome. And so I, I think Alaska gives you a lot of possibilities. Like Maine, there's that sort of human civilization on the fringe of nature uh, feel that I think Stephen King gets at occasionally, and Lovecraft got at almost continuously in uh, Whisper in Darkness and some of the other stories. I think you can certainly uh, do any kind of Lovecraftian excitement up there that you want. And uh, Ithaqua, as I mentioned, is already penned up uh, north of the Arctic Circle per August Derleth. And, of course, north of the Arctic Circle is about, what, a fifth of Alaska right there. Right. And, of course, you've got your uh, ice base station uh, horror. You can do the thing in whatever iteration you want to do that. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, who knows... Uh, what is uh, lurking further up there. So you could uh, go for uh, uh, quite a while. as And because the characters are uh, isolated there and because it takes so long for help to arrive, uh, uh, you know, you might be the, you know, the, the guys from the government's X-Files division who are given the terrible assignment of having to go to Alaska to, to run the base there. And you uh, sort of get you out of the usual problem of, well, what if the PCs just tell their higher-ups to do something about it, and that mm -hmm. explains why they are uh, there as the main protagonist of the storyline and can't readily call for backup. Yeah, I think Mila Jovovich was in a UFO movie set in Nome, Alaska, that might also provide some uh, some color. There was, I'm, I'm fairly sure that there have been Alaskan UFOs, and the Nome case may actually have been one. You can pull that in. There's, uh, like we mentioned, the, the death of um, uh, Hale Boggs in the, uh, in the mysterious plane disappearing in 1972. The guy who created the greatest spy show ever, Sandbaggers, also disappeared over the Gulf of Alaska. And so you have sort of a, maybe an Alaska Triangle or something uh, over the Gulf of Alaska between Anchorage and Juneau and, and wherever that can provide you with yet another supernatural doorway into Alaska. There's uh, Mount McKinley or Denali, which of course is a sacred mountain. All of your sacred mountain fun from Theosophists to uh, Amigo can uh, activate themselves up there. And... Um, Depending on, on what sort of uh, higher notes you want to, to put in, whatever thematic concerns, if you're a global warming uh, guy, you can, of course, have your horrors can be melting out of the permafrost as, as we globally warm, or you can be blaming global warming on HARP, which is one of the many things that uh, idiots and the Euro European Parliament, but I repeat myself, have <laughs> been... Um, uh, have been saying over the years. Yes, well, uh, the European Parliament is the uh, state senate of uh, of Europe, for sure. <laughs> and uh, on the uh, global warming horror tip, uh, there's a film called The Last Winter, which uh, does just that, which would be a great reference point for this uh, uh, Alaskan weird uh, campaign. Well, I think we've given people enough to, to go on to uh, uh, run off and start to uh, whipping up their version of, the, of this campaign, so I think our work is done here for another week. I believe so. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Bombard our Ionosphere at kennethrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff. <laughs>